Well, good afternoon. It is really nice to see you all. I'm looking forward to um, sharing with you this afternoon. We've been looking at some studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, before Christmas, we were looking at chapters 1 and 2. And uh, after Christmas, we've been looking at uh, chapter 3 and 4. And today, we've reached chapter 5. And the next three chapters in Matthew are basically a sermon that Jesus preached. That fact alone should make us sit up and take notice, I think. Imagine hearing Jesus himself preach a sermon. You have to listen to me. But um, imagine Jesus preaching and you hearing him preach. These words in chapter 5, 6 and 7 have had a huge influence in history. Um, There are many people, even people who are not Christians, who have marveled at the wisdom contained here. For example, there's a famous Hindu spiritual leader, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, You remember uh, the story of his life uh, made into a film. He was assassinated, I think, just after the Second World War. Mahatma Gandhi is said to have read from this sermon of Jesus every single day in his meditations. And it had a huge impact in his on, on his non-violent approach to politics in India and, and elsewhere. American pastor R. Kent Hughes says, uh, this is simply the greatest sermon ever preached. And he goes on to say this, this is the most penetrating section of God's word because the theme is entering the kingdom of heaven It shows us exactly where we stand in relation to that kingdom and eternal life. As we expose ourselves to the x-rays of Christ's words, we see whether we truly are believers. And if we are believers, the degree of authenticity of our lives. No other section of scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. It is violent, but its violence can be our ongoing liberation. And it is the antidote to the pretense and sham that plagues Christianity. He mentioned there the Sermon on the Mount. It's become known as the Sermon on the Mount because in verse 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, went up on a mountainside to teach. I visited this place in February. I've got a picture here that I took. Um, it's not great in this light, is it? That, but this this is we 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 walked along this path. That's one of our party there. Um, this this is the slopey meadow on the very northwest corner of of the Sea of Galilee. So this is looking back down the Sea of Galilee. And if you look just in the top corner there, between the trees. Uh, there's a church there called the Church of the Beatitudes which has been built because they think this is the very place where Jesus taught the crowds overlooking the Sea of Galilee you can't quite see on that picture just how blue the sky is and what a beautiful day it was when we were there but it wasn't hard to imagine Jesus teaching crowds who had gathered on the side of the hillside there and there were crowds there Some commentators have suggested that this is not a real sermon, but what Matthew's actually doing is gathering together lots of different things that Jesus taught at different times, and he's arranging them into a sermon 
before us. That, that may well be partly true. But at the beginning here, Jesus is on a real mountainside. Matthew says he saw the crowds and he went up on a mountainside. He sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. But even more, at the end, if you, if you just flick over to the end of this sermon, three chapters, five, six and seven, right at the end of chapter seven, verse 28, Matthew says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not like their teachers of the law. That, that sounds to me like this is a sermon that has a beginning and it has an end. When he'd finished, they were amazed. The crowds were astonished at the authority of his teaching. So whether Matthew's putting certain things together here, maybe partly true, but I, I think this is a real sermon. Jesus here is primarily teaching his close disciples but there are crowds of people who are eavesdropping on this teaching. Jesus doesn't seem to care that he is addressing at the same time the committed and the curious. In this crowd are his disciples and all kinds of people who are just like, this is interesting, I wonder what this fellow's on about. The curious and the committed at the same time. This is, Jesus doesn't mind. This sermon is relevant to all people who will hear him preach. It's interesting as well that Matthew places this sermon near the beginning of his gospel. In chapter 4 and verse 17, it's just on the same page in our church Bibles here. After John the Baptist, Jesus begins to preach and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He begins to preach and Matthew summarises his early ministry in Galilee. Verse 23, Jesus went through throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. That's Matthew's summary of Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases those suffering severe pain, a demon possessed those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. What was Jesus doing? He was preaching and teaching and healing. What's interesting is in Matthew now chapter 5, 6 and 7 Jesus preaches. When you get to chapter 8 and 9 there's a whole number of individuals that Jesus meets who he heals these next chapters chapter 4 verse 23 is like the contents page Jesus preaches and teaches and he heals chapter 5, 6 and 7 is the preaching chapters 8 and 9 is an example of the healing so Matthew at the very beginning here is giving us a sense of Jesus' early ministry Jesus is proclaiming that a kingdom a new kingdom has come and then he demonstrates his power as the new king. So one writer calls this Sermon on the Mount the manifesto of the king. We have a lot of politicians, don't we, who, uh, when the election comes around, they, they put their manifesto through the letterbox and you read all the things that they're pledging. Um, this sermon, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 
is the manifesto of the king. This is the blueprint, the outline, a description of what his new kingdom will look like and how its citizens will behave. In chapter 4, Jesus calls his first disciples um, fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John. He says to them, follow me. And then in chapter 5, he goes up on the mountainside. His disciples come to them. They sit down and Jesus begins to teach them. Here's the deal, guys. You're my disciples now. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what my kingdom looks like. This is how you are to live now. Well, I'm, I'm excited to get to, to this part of Matthew's Gospel. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this sermon of Jesus. There's three chapters here. There's a lot here. And, and there's a lot of good things for us to get into. But today, and, and next week, I, I want to try and introduce this sermon as a whole first, okay? Uh, next week, we, we've got a baptismal service next week actually, so we'll, we'll probably be a bit shorter in our talk time. But next week, I want to give you an overview of this sermon. Um, and we'll try and follow that. But today, I want to do two things. Firstly, how not to read this sermon. And then secondly, I want us to think about what the main overall theme of this sermon is. So we're going to look at it as a whole. And then next week I'll give you an overview and then we'll get into the detail. Okay? Sounds like a plan. So first of all, two dangers or problems to avoid. Let me, let me show you how not to read this sermon first of all. Um, so, two dangers to avoid. Here we go. Number one. Loving the ethics, but dodging Jesus. And it won't be hard to guess what number two is. Because it's the opposite of that, but we'll come to that in a minute. Loving the ethics but dodging Jesus. I want to suggest to you that the world often seems to be saying we should all live like this. Gandhi would have said that. We should all live like this. The world would be an amazing place if everyone could live by the Sermon on the Mount. But we don't really want the Jesus who preached it we love the ethics, but we don't really want to bow the knee to the king who preached this. I think there are many religious people, philosophers, who see the Sermon on the Mount as the greatest example, the loftiest example of morals and ethics. But they don't want Christ. Let me illustrate, in my preparation uh, to, to talk on this, I came across a website that was called Atheist for Jesus. That made me wake up a little bit. Uh, that was really intriguing. Atheist for Jesus? Who, who's this? Um, this is one guy. His name is Ken Shai. And he is an atheist, but let me read to you some blurb from his website. I do not mean to imply in any way that I've converted to Christianity although I now believe Jesus to be a God. What I do mean is that I've come to have a great deal of respect for the teachings of Jesus. 
My respect for Jesus is not based on the cross, but rather on the mount. Not on his death and supposed resurrection, but on his teachings as exemplified by the Sermon on the Mount. This guy is an atheist who reads the Sermon on the Mount and says, Yes, this is brilliant. But he doesn't actually want the Christ he preached it. Now, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I think we can see what he means. There's teaching here that would undoubtedly make the world a better place and a safer place to live. Look with me. Let's skip through it. Chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Who's going to argue with that? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who's going to argue with that? Chapter 7, verse 1. I think this verse gets taken out of context all the time. But um, Jesus says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is great teaching. The so-called golden rule. Have you heard of that, the golden rule? Chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus says, So in everything, do to others what they would do to you. Oh, hang on, no, he doesn't say that. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Who would argue with the golden rule? The most important thing in all of this is love, as one writer puts it, the brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God, and the ethic of love. And a lot of that is true. This teaching is sublime. But the problem, of course, is that Jesus himself is claiming to be so much more than just a nice teacher of brotherly kindness and love. Here in this very sermon that all kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians, admire, here in this very sermon, Jesus says things that are utterly astonishing. Just look with me into chapter 7. As Jesus gets to the end of this sermon, in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, I don't mind people calling me Lord, What I want is for people to mean it. He isn't telling people not to worship him. He's saying, don't just say it and not mean it. And it gets even more astonishing. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, that is the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus Christ here is claiming to be the judge of all the world. He's not claiming to be a nice religious teacher. He's saying, on the day of judgment, all men will stand before me and I'll decide whether they can come into my kingdom or not. That is an amazing claim for a human being to make. Jesus, here in chapter 5, Graham read to us, claims to fulfill the very law of God, to be the embodiment of it. Chapter 5, verse 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus isn't just a teacher who comes and says, I'll explain to you what the law means. He says, I've actually come to be the embodiment of it. He assumes authority to explain what the Old Testament means. In chapter 5, as we'll see when we go through it, all the way through that chapter, Jesus says, Moses said to you, but I say unto you. All the time, Jesus is saying, the law said this, but I say this. He claims even in chapter 5, verse 11, to be the ultimate reason for persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. C.S. Lewis captured this point well when he wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can't say the things that Jesus says. You can't claim the things that Jesus claims here and be a great moral teacher unless you are who you claim to be. My point here is that you can't separate the ethics and morals of Jesus from who he actually is. It's impossible to understand the ethics without understanding him. It is impossible to live like this without seeing him as the king that he really is. You can't have his sayings without embracing him. This is not some random religious leader speaking in this sermon. This is the son of God. We we are not to sit in judgment over him This is the judge of the entire world preaching. His teaching isn't one opinion among many. This is the teaching that tops all other teaching. And I think all the way through this sermon you can hear the supreme I of Jesus. I, 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 I have come. I say unto you. He's not making suggestions here. He demands our attention because he is the king. 
And the reason people were amazed isn't because he was giving them nice advice, but because he taught as one who had authority. But there can be another danger, and you've guessed what it is, it's the other way around. The second danger as we approach this sermon is that we're attempting to love Jesus but dodge the ethics. That's kind of the opposite way around. I think if the world seems to be saying we love the ethics but we don't want him, I think sometimes the church can seem to be saying we love him but this teaching doesn't really apply to us. So on the one hand it's possible to want the ethics but not Jesus. On the other it's possible to want the Jesus but not really want to face his demands here. I I think there's been a lot of ways in history that Christians have read this sermon in a way that reduces its demands down basically to nothing. Jesus says very radical striking things here. But I think we can sometimes make him mean something that he never meant in order to wriggle out from underneath the implications of his words. So the question here is, who who does this sermon apply to? Some people suggest, first of all, that this sermon only applies to the really holy elite people like pastors and ministers. Oh man, Uh, we could talk about that for a long time if you want me to be personal, but um, the idea here, and people have preached this in the past, St. Thomas Aquinas preached this very thing in the 12th century. It is only possible to live like this when you withdraw from life and become a monk. This sermon is really for enlightened ones, serious ones, dedicated ones, committed ones. You can't really live like this if you have a job or any commitments. Life's too complicated. The only way to live like this is to be a professionally holy person. Or to live in a monastery. Sometimes people have suggested, secondly, that this only applies to believers in the past. So, the argument goes, this sermon comes before Jesus died and rose again. So it's kind of before the gospel. People didn't have the full story here. In a way, this is Jesus, who was, after all, a Jewish teacher, showing other Jews how they were supposed to have lived. This is Jesus explaining to Israel what Israel should have been all along. So this is really still part of the Old Testament, looking backwards. And what Jesus is doing here is preaching Old Testament laws to people who'd failed to keep them in order to show them that they'd fallen short of it and how much they need salvation from Jesus so that they would run to him and trust him for forgiveness. So actually, all of these commands are impossible to attain. What Jesus is trying to do is show people what they haven't done. The problem is, is that that's not what it says, is it? Jesus could have said that if he meant that. But nowhere in this sermon does he let anyone off the hook of any of these commands he seems to assume that we're meant to obey all of this another variation of this is that some commentators believe that this only applies to believers in the future this is actually a sermon about the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus won't be fully 
implemented until Jesus comes again one day in the future. And so this teaching really here is what the kingdom of Christ will look like one day in the future when it's perfect. This is, isn't it great to look forward to this? But it doesn't really apply to anyone now. You can probably guess that I do believe that Jesus means what he says here and that all of it applies to all Christians all of the time. I think the major issue is that we get confused a lot, I think, between God's laws and God's grace. And so often we set them against each other and we either make Christianity all law. Let me read you a quote here from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this, emphasizing the law or the law alone, the rules if you like, turns the gospel of Jesus Christ with its glorious liberty into nothing but a collection of moral maxims. It is all law and there is no grace left. People so talk of the Christian life as something that we have to do in order to make ourselves Christian that it becomes pure legalism and there is really no grace in it. But the opposite danger is that we make it all grace and we live as if God's laws don't apply to us. We can be so guilty of emphasising grace that we forget the plain teaching of Jesus here and I, I want to suggest to you that Jesus will not let us hide behind his grace if we're using that as an excuse for not striving to obey his commands. That's not a place that we can stand. You can't have the ethics here without facing the Jesus, but neither can you have the Jesus without properly facing the ethics. Now, a, a lot of what we're saying here never even occurred to early Christians. They, they knew, early Christians, I'm talking about in the first few centuries after Christ, they knew that this sermon wasn't an exam to pass, but that it actually applied to Christians who had already received God's grace, and that this is a description of how they should live by God's grace and in God's grace. It is hard to find any Bible commentator in the first thousand years of, the ch of church history who, who argues that this doesn't apply to all Christians. In fact, I, I would say that a lot of the New Testament that we have written by other people, Paul and Peter and John, a lot of the rest of the New Testament alludes to the teaching of Jesus here. We could prove that and give you references for that. But just get this fact. In the first 300 years of the church, the early church fathers quoted from these three chapters more frequently and more extensively than any other three chapters in the Bible. In other words, for them, this sermon was utterly foundational. I think there are Christians who don't even know this sermon in our modern culture, for, the, for those early Christians, this sermon was the foundation. John Chrysostom, writing in the 4th century, says, Let us not consider that these commands are impossible. 
He didn't think it applied to someone else. He read it and felt that it applied to him as a Christian with God's grace. Martin Luther later argued that this sermon addresses people who are already Christian believers. I quote, The righteous life described here in the Sermon on the Mount is a product of the Spirit's transforming work rather than mere human effort and it is the result of salvation rather than a requirement for it. In a similar time, John Calvin said this, I love this quote, to our weakness, indeed, everything, even to the minutest tittle of the law, is arduous and difficult. In the Lord we have strength. That Christians are under the law of grace means not that they are to wander unrestrained without law, but that they are engrafted into Christ by whose grace they have the law written into their hearts. None of these Christians from earlier periods in church history would have recognised the tendency in our modern culture to neglect this sermon as if it didn't apply to us. So there's a couple of dangers. We can want the ethics but dodge the Jesus. We might hide behind the Jesus and dodge the ethics. Let's build up some idea of the main theme then of this sermon more positively. I've just got three things to say under this and, and then we'll be done. But we don't know how long it'll take me to say those three things. The, go- the Gospel of Matthew, first of all, I want to suggest to you, this is the context for this sermon, the Gospel of Matthew points to a new power being available to human beings. American author and pastor David Platt points out that this sermon is like the filling in a hope sandwich. Why does he say that? Well, think about how Matthew's Gospel begins and ends, because this sermon comes in the... it's, It's near the beginning, but it's in the middle. In chapter 1... Matthew tells us that Jesus was called Jesus. Why? An angel appeared to Joseph and said, you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Later in that section, he says that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is given as a hint of what's to come. This Jesus has come on a rescue mission to save people, to rescue people from their sins and to live with them in intimacy. I want you to get that when Matthew says Jesus will save people from their sins... He is not only saying that God will let people off from their sins. When Matthew says he will save his people from their sins, he isn't just talking about forgiveness. What he's talking about is a saviour who will come into the world 
who will, yes, forgive people's sins, but will also give them power to live a new kind of life. That's what it really means to be saved from your sins. You want someone to help you. You want someone to be able to break habits and patterns of thought and behavior that are rebellious against God. You need someone, we, I need someone, we need someone who will save us from all that, save us from ourselves. Not just let us off, but lift us up. So when Matthew says, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, this is a superlative rescue mission. Matthew is talking about God creating a whole new group of people here. Jesus did not come into the world to tell us that our sins don't matter. He came into the world to forgive sins and to create a people who are capable of new obedience to God. And where does Matthew end his gospel? What's the second slice in the sandwich? Well, he gives several chapters, as all the gospel writers do, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because this Saviour came into the world to die, to pay for our sins because they're that bad, and to rise again to give us power to live a new kind of life. Why did Jesus die? Later on in the New Testament, a man called Paul wrote a letter to his friend who was a church leader on the island of Crete. And he's telling him what to preach, what to teach. And Paul writes to Titus and he says this, For the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Why? And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Matthew's Gospel is a rescue mission. This sermon is not a test to pass or like an entrance exam to get into God's kingdom. It is a description of what this new kingdom actually looks like. Let me read you a quote from David Platt again. When you read the Sermon on the Mount... You should not walk away thinking, I must turn the other cheek in order to be accepted by God. I must love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me in order to be accepted by God. I must follow the golden rule perfectly in order to be accepted by God. We are not accepted by God because of anything that we do. We are accepted by God completely and totally because of a perfect saviour who has died a bloody death in our place and who's risen again in victory. Yes, we pray for our enemies. We love those who persecute us. We follow the golden rule. But we do these things not in order to earn our acceptance before God, but because we have acceptance by God and we want to glorify him.
in everything that we do. This sermon is not some impossible code of ethics. This is a description of a life that is the fruit of the gospel. So the gospel of Matthew, first of all, points to new power being available. Let me flesh that out further. Secondly, the gospel of Matthew points to Christ fulfilling history. This is what the whole gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus is the promised Messiah this is a new kind of kingdom being born it doesn't contradict what has gone before rather it fulfills and completes and delivers it I wish we had more time. We talked about this a little bit already. Matthew, I think, very deliberately portrays Jesus in Matthew's Gospel as greater than Moses was in the Old Testament. That's not meant to be a criticism of Moses. But what Matthew's trying to show us is Moses was good. Jesus has come to fulfill everything that Moses taught. Let me show you some of the promises of God in the Old Testament in the prophet Ezekiel God said to his people this is a few centuries before Christ was even born he said to his people I will give you a new heart I will put a new spirit within you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you instead a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people This is the covenant I will make with the people after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Listen. What, what Matthew, I think, is portraying for us is that Moses received from God Ten Commandments that he wrote on tablets of stone. But Jesus has come in a greater, superior way to Moses to write God's laws on the hearts of his dear people. Moses was all about righteousness that comes to us from the outside Jesus actually comes into the world to give us power on the inside. Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom will look like. This is what my people will look like. This is how my kingdom is. What one writer says, the context of Christian ethics is that of the coming of the kingdom of God. For people of faith, the kingdom is coming and will always be coming as we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. While it is coming, wherever and whenever God is ruling, 
it will ultimately come in its fullness in the second coming of Christ. To make it solely a present happening would minimise its greatness and to make it only a future happening would destroy the meaning and authority of Jesus' present lordship or kingship. Thirdly then, Matthew's Gospel points to a new power being available. It points to Christ fulfilling history. It's the Messiah, new king. This sermon itself works always from the inside out. I want this to encourage our hearts. Jesus draws attention here to the Pharisees. They were religious leaders in the time of Jesus and the teachers of the law. I think the key verse of this whole sermon is in chapter 5 and verse 20. If you have a Bible, just look at that verse with me. Jesus says something very shocking, really. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know these guys who spend all day, every day, trying to be righteous? Jesus says, well, you've got to do better than them. (laughs) You know these guys who know the Torah off by heart and can recite it on street corners? Guys, you've got to do better than them. I mean, people looked up to the Pharisees as being the holy man. These guys, these are the professional holy guys. Jesus said, you know the Pharisees, if you don't do better than them, you won't enter my kingdom. I want you to see that this is not about quality, quantity, but about quality. Jesus isn't saying here, they are 75% righteous, but to get into my kingdom, you have to get to 90%. Jesus isn't saying that righteousness is about a quantity of boxes to tick. What Jesus is speaking about here is a completely different quality of righteousness altogether. Let me illustrate. Jesus says something very scathing to the Pharisees later on in chapter 23. Let me read to you. This is the beginning of a conflict that didn't end until they put Jesus on a cross. Jesus publicly said this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What was the issue? They were painting the outside of their lives... And trying to show off to people that they were right with God when in their hearts they were rotten. 
They prided themselves on their external appearance of righteousness. But their hearts were full of greed and hatred and bitterness and jealousy and pride. Jesus said, you're like a tomb that's painted white and inside you're full of dead men's bones. Scathing, isn't it? They looked like they were keeping God's laws, but inside their hearts were bad. They loved their rules, but they hated Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 17, Graham read to us. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does he mean? Jesus means that he has come to bring in a new era in which the moral laws of God are not painted on the outside of our lives, but are actually working within us from the inside out. Jesus comes to give people completely new hearts. He comes to give people a completely new power. Jesus comes into the world to give people new life and energy. He is not calling people here to earn his grace by their rule keeping, but to come to him so that he then enables them to obey his commands. Jesus isn't saying, live like this and then I'll love you. He is coming into the world and saying, I do love you. I died to save you. So now go in my strength and live like this. This is the great difference. Religion is always trying to work from the outside in. Jesus always works from the inside out. In a way, even his commands are promises of grace. Can I urge you this afternoon, do not try to obey his commands without knowing his grace. And don't use his grace as an excuse for not obeying his commands. Let's pray.